If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast. how are you doing there it is the podcast time hope all is well you know the drill we're trying to make that economics malarkey a little bit more comprehensible etc how are you head very good, as always. Yeah, all very good. Do you know what I was thinking about? What were you thinking about? Oh, we, what, was, <laughs> what was on your mind? Do we we had Robert Lind on Tuesday. Yeah. He was great. When you asked him about MMT. Yes. Is that the way forward for the UK? But I was amazed that he was just totally, yes, that is the way forward. Yeah, because he'd, he'd ended the podcast and saying, look, the UK's got to figure out a way to pay for all this. He's talking about levelling up and what they're going to do. And then he said, well, you know, we've got a problem because we probably can't afford it in the traditional way. Yeah. And then he said, maybe that's what's going to happen. But it's just, like MMT really is gaining a it's lot of traction. Tra- and I mean, again, you know, Robert and I are the same age. We were basically brought up learning the same economics. We were educated in the same way. Uh, we worked in the city together a long time ago. But basically, we understood the same way of thinking. And now... He's saying maybe that was wrong. Or not wrong, but maybe it can be... Well, it's changed. It's, it's, it's changed. evolving. It's it evolving. Changed. You always talk about the evolution of economics. But I also wonder, is economics the way it's been taught? Has that evolved much? Are you? Is it, is it the same stuff as, as it's what all you're to do, doing? It's all to do with this podcast, John. You know, we're changing the way, <laughs> we're changing the way people think. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to go to the States in a minute to talk to Megan Green, Harvard economist, very brilliant person, very, very brilliant mind, about the revolution that is happening within the White House, driven by Biden, but informed by MMT. Yeah, yeah, so great. So I think let's go there because, again, when you have someone like Robert Lind saying this could be the way forward, these are not people out in the extreme. These are not people who are new to the game. These are people who are old school professionals who are now thinking... Mm. Maybe there's a new way. So let's look at it. Okay, just before we get started, I've been watching Bitcoin from afar, as you do. But 
it's it's been on a roller coaster for the last. It's all over the shop. Oh, for the last what couple of months. Well, no, the, the, the huge upswing in the last couple of months. Yes. And then the last couple of days, huge downturn. Yeah. And and the likes of Elon Musk and his, he backed it all the way initially, and then he pulled back from it and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I mean, actually, a little sidebar on the Elon Musk thing. It does show you. So Elon Musk said, Bitcoin is far too pollutant. Gener- it, it demands too much energy to produce. Mm, yeah. What's interesting there is the way in which... People like Elon Musk 20 years ago, 30 years ago, would never have genuflected to the environmental movement and said, I'm going to change my industrial and commercial strategy based on the environment. Now they are doing it. And it's this idea of ESG, which is all of its economics, environment, social and government. Yeah. What's your stance about this behavior? Is that another word for woke? Woke. Do you know there was an interesting survey the other day, which is 59% of people in the world don't know what woke means? All right, good. Because I don't really know. I what it means. hate that phrase. Oh, look at him. Angry centrist dad over there. Boomer. <laughs> yeah. Hey, boomer. We're Gen Xers, apparently, which is the finest generation. But tell anyway, us, tell so, us. So, but bit on the bit, about, about, about Bitcoin, what the last couple of days has proved is that Bitcoin is an asset, it's not money. That's yeah. a very important thing. And as an asset, so the reason it's not money is because it doesn't have any of the characteristics of money. So the characteristics of money are basically, there's three main ones. It has to be used as a medium of exchange so yeah. we can trade it. And Bitcoin isn't, right? It has to be a hedge against inflation. And Bitcoin's the opposite, right? right. So what yeah, happened yeah, yeah, last exactly. week was that, remember we talked about inflation last week? Yeah. So people's expectations of inflation rose rapidly. Now, if Bitcoin was a hedge against inflation, it would have risen rapidly because people would have bought it to hedge against inflation, but they yeah. fucking sold it, right? <laughs> so it's the opposite, right? Right, right. And, and it has to be a store of value. So a store of value means that I have a fairly good idea of how much this is worth. But if Bitcoin is jumping around, like for example, last Friday, Bitcoin fell by 29% in one day, mm, wow. right? That is an actual value fall of $220, $220 billion, right? Was wow. wiped off the value yeah. of Bitcoin. So whatever it is, and it is something, it is a technology that may well end up being good for something. But you know, one of the greatest technologies of the past century were postal stamps, right? They were good for sending stamps. Right. And people collected them too. Yeah. But nobody said stamps were money. Do you see what I mean? True. So lots yeah, of yeah, things yeah. that are technology can't, they don't have to be money. So I think that, you know, call me old-fashioned. Mm, which you're you old-fashioned. Ra- which you rarely do. <laughs> but... You have to apply, if it's an asset, then you have to apply things like discounted cash flows, uh, earnings, all these things that you say, how much is this worth? Mm. We know that Bitcoin hasn't really made that jump. It still is worth what people think it's worth. And one of the tricks that it's playing on investors and small-time speculators' imaginations is the following. Every time Bitcoin rises... They take this as meaning that Bitcoin is becoming closer to money, Mm. right? Mm. But there's no evidence of that. Mm. So even if Bitcoin is rising, it's not saying it's becoming a closer substitute of money. It's just becoming, it's more speculation. So I think, again, you know, the world is big enough to have an asset class called Bitcoin. Is it a money? Is it the alternative to the dollar or the euro? No way. No way. And this last changing in 
its valuation suggests that this is exactly the case, that people actually don't know what it is yet. Yeah. That's the point. And I mean, the, the interesting thing about the pandemic and everything this last year is that you should assume everything that you see in economics now is temporary until it proves itself to be permanent. And right. that's a totally different way of looking at things as the world is in such, such a state of flux. Yeah. In the past, you'd look at something and say, I assume that's permanent until somebody proves it's temporary, until it gets shocked, yeah. right? Whereas I think now, given that we're in such a state of chassis with money and exchange rates and MMT and financial engineering and QE and all that sort of stuff, not, not QAnon, on QE, all that <laughs> sort of stuff, I think just, you know, assume something is temporary until it proves to be permanent. And what Bitcoin suggests to me is that still has a long way to go to prove that it's a permanent, even substitute for money. So at the moment, it's a speculative asset that has its role, but I'm not too sure that I, people won't lose a lot of money. As, as the brother said in Flann O'Brien, permanence, it's your only man. <laughs> so tell me this then, what's your view then on NFTs, these non-fungible tokens? Nonsense. It's all horseshit, John. That's what I reckoned. This but... is this is peak end of cycle bullshit. When the world prints money for free, yeah, all sorts of strange things happen. But the most significant thing is the link between money and value dissipates. What what we know is that the non fungible tokens mm. are assets. They're not money, right? Mm. And this is really you know the greater fool theory. Like yeah. you're selling to the bigger gobshite. Yeah. This is the bigger gobshite approach to finance. And lots of people will lose a fortune. Yeah. That's what I thought. There you go. You could have just said that. <laughs> now, John, it's interesting because Bitcoin, MMT, all these things we're going to talk about today, they're all related because ultimately they are all about what is money. What actually is money? Mm. Is it invented? Is it made up? Does it have like the Bitcoin? It's incredibly abstract. It is really abstract. Start thinking it's, about it. And it's the most abstract thing that humans have ever come up with, the notion of value. Yeah. And the notion of hierarchies based on value, and the notion of something that we can trade, etc. So it is really, really different. So the Bitcoiners are saying, all that old money, that fiat money, nah, We've got a new standard. We call it, they call it digital gold, right? Yeah. The MMTers are saying the opposite. They're saying, hold on a second. You know what? Money derives its value not from its link to something physical, but from its social value, its ability to get the whole system working. Right. So now okay. we're, we're going to talk about MMT. We're going to talk about the new economics, the new monetary economics of the Biden administration with a brilliant economist. Brilliant, brilliant economist, Megan Green from the States. I've known her for many, many years. She's on the line from New York. She's a Harvard economist. She's the real deal. So let's go to New York. Megan, how are you? Good, thanks. Tell Vaccinated and pleased that the world is starting to open up a little bit. <laughs> Did you enjoy your gin? Oh, so much that I finished it and bought another one. It was fantastic. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. This is, this is just so, so you know as a listener that everybody who comes on the David McWilliams podcast gets a bottle of gin. It's true. For Christmas. Was it gin it's or whiskey? the only reason Jam? I'm doing this again. I got, I got gin. You got gin. Of course it's the only reason you're doing it. Exactly. You know, this is... <laughs> this is We've got consumer surveys, you know, all these sort of things. But Megan, you are 
And I am at the moment fascinated by the radicalism of the White House and Joe Biden from the economics perspective. Talk to me about it. Yeah, so I think what Joe Biden is trying to do is totally revolutionary. He's rethinking economics entirely in a way that a lot of economists have been calling for for ages, but we just haven't seen from any country anywhere. And so what he's doing is he's taking a crisis and using it as a huge opportunity to think about what we want the economy to look like on the other end of this. So when Joe Biden says we're building back better, he really means that, including the better part. And that's the important bit. So rather than just recognizing that we fell down a hole and we need to get back to where we were before, he's recognizing we fell down a hole, we need to get back to where we were before, but actually we can fundamentally change the structure of our economy and of capitalism in the process. And so He's not just trying to fill the hole up perfectly, which is what you normally try to do with a fiscal response to a downturn. He's trying to fill the hole up and then overfill it several times over, but use the money for really important fundamental things that could bring the economy to a totally different plane. And so there's this big spat among economists, um, between those economists who think, you know what, we're doing way too much and we're going to overheat the economy and this is all going to end in tears. And then some more heterodox economists are saying, this is fantastic. Thank God someone is finally doing this. We're not going to overheat the economy. We're just fundamentally bringing the economy to a different level altogether. And that's the role of policy. That's what it should be. And so I think, you know, there's this nerdy stat within the economics world, but I think it's um, also kind of, ref it's changing yeah. what our view of policy is, what the point is, and what our economy should look like on the other no, side No, I mean, I mean what, what we're going to talk about, so I'll just explain to the listeners, economics, I've always thought, is theology. It's not really a hard science. And because it's theology, it has schisms like any proper church, interpretations of the gospel and the Bible and the Old Testament, the New Testament. So just imagine it to be like a large church. And there are cardinals and there are high priests and there's parish priests and there are competing popes, right? And over the last maybe 40 years, there have been about five or six big head honcho, usually blokes, all, always male. They're all, now all in their 70s. And they're one side. And then the other side are sort of the, the mini Martin Luthers who are having these private little mutinies in their heads. And they are what are called the heterodox as opposed to the orthodox community. Explain to me, Megan, heterodox economics. What is it? So heterodox economics is kind of a bucket for all the economists who are rejecting the traditional old rules of economics and saying, look, this isn't actually how the world works anymore. Maybe it did at one point, maybe it didn't. There are a bunch of theories out there that work as theories, but don't play out in real life that we still cling to in the traditional economics world. Um, and heterodox economists are saying, you know, some of this stuff doesn't work. We need to rethink Economics, and interestingly, you say economics isn't really a science, but a lot of the heterodox economists are looking at the hard sciences to say, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on in all these other sciences that they've worked out that we could actually use in economics to improve what we're doing. And for some reason, economics is the only science that hasn't adopted that. So one example is this idea of an equilibrium. So traditionally in economics, we've always thought that there's this kind of this steady state for the economy, yeah. a single equilibrium. Which, which, and is, which is complete nonsense, by the way. 
because that complete nonsense. And, and it's funny. Yeah. We, well, I just interject because Megan and I have studied this over the years, but I do feel sorry for university graduates who start with this really difficult mathematical notion. And it is bloody hard. And you get down some rabbit hole, Leon Hooved and all these sort of crazy things, right? I remember this, this puts the fear of God into me. But the basic idea is that the, econ the economy is inert. It's asleep. It gets to a certain level and nothing changes. And we all know that the one thing that changes is everything changes all the time. So this, tell me, so orthodoxy, this is a catechism of the orthodoxy, the equilibrium idea. That's right, that there's just a single level that the economy is always going to revert to. And the role of policy is to just kind of get things out of the way so the economy can revert to that level or to push, kind of nudge the economy towards that level. And all of our really complicated macroeconomic forecasting models are based fundamentally on this notion. And I think, honestly, we partly have, have kind of gravitated towards these models based on this notion because we can wrap our heads around it, that there is this single level that the economy is always going to kind of gravitate towards. Whereas in every other science, they've rejected this notion and have embraced the idea that actually there are multiple kind of levels towards which the economy can revert. And those levels of equilibria can actually change within themselves. So I think economics likes to assume that we have um, really complex actors in a really simple system. And every other science assumes the opposite, that we have really simple actors in a really complex system. And I have to say, we've all been staring at, you know, epidemiology models uh, for the past year off the back of this, this uh, crisis. And actually, the epidemiologists assume we have really, really complex actors who are constantly changing their strategies in response to the environment around them and that these natural levels that you could naturally gravitate towards, they move a lot because the actors are always changing their minds. Um, they've gotten their forecasts much better than we economists have. And so this is something we should probably look at and think about adopting. And, and I think that the Biden folks are actually doing this, which is really exciting. So explain to me, why do you think, what's, so what's changed in terms of who's Biden listening to why do you think, and again, because lots of people have said to me, look, Biden's really radical. And we didn't expect that because he was Mr. Center. He was Mr., you know, he was he was the centrist character. And, and, and why do you think he is changing? Who's he listening to? Yeah, I had someone describe him to me as boring but radical. And I think that's probably like the best thing you could be yeah. <laughs> as a head of state. Um, Particularly so as you've had listening? the other, you've, you, you, you know what went before him as well. <laughs> That's right. It's a nice change. <laughs> um, if you look at who he's hired as economists, who he hired first, at least, they were all domestic labor economists, um, which is really interesting, including his Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, is a, a great labor economist. And so I think he's listening to people who care more about things like inequality and the fact that our markets are all rigged. Um, and less to economists who say, well, here's what we traditionally do. Here's how we traditionally develop fiscal policy. We have to figure out the size of the hole, figure out how much the measures that we want to do are going to fill it and then fill it completely. I think he's just decided that that's not necessary. And thankfully, it's about time. And so he's listening to labor economists who actually care about people, I think. And that's, that's a big difference. 
some people have asked me, you know, has Biden gone off the rails? Is, is Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are they driving policy? And I don't think that's the case at all. I think it is a bunch of sort of centrist economists who recognize that our markets are rigged uh, and that a lot of people have fallen behind and that we should probably do something about this. Now, now tell me, the proof of the pudding will probably be in inflation. If inflation takes off, the orthodox economists will have said, no, 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 I told you so. Is that really, yeah. is that the nub of the issue now? Yeah, so that is where this could succeed or fail, is whether we generate sustained inflation that makes the central bank worry and feel like they have to tighten policy in response. Um, and that's the concern, because if you look at every economic cycle we've had since the Fed came into being, it has only managed to face inflation hike rates to try to address it without pitching the economy into a new recession, uh, I think twice in history. So the Fed's record on this is not great. Uh, and so that's the concern is that we, if we get inflation and the Fed freaks out and feels like they have to tighten monetary policy, they tend to overdo it and pitch us back into a new recession. And also, uh, you know, this has repercussions for the rest of the world because if the Fed starts hiking rates, uh, and uh, rates go up in the U.S., they drag rates up everywhere else. And so we saw this, uh, you know, just over a month ago when borrowing costs in the U.S. started going up because investors realized we were getting these huge fiscal packages and thought we might get some inflation. And you saw, you know, borrowing costs in Europe creep up right alongside them. And this has real repercussions for emerging markets, which were already over-indebted before this crisis, have borrowed a ton in order to fund the response to this crisis. Um, some of their borrowings in U.S. dollars, which is also problematic. But if their borrowing costs go up, then we could end up seeing kind of this cascading sovereign debt crisis uh, across emerging markets. And we don't really have the tools to address that. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question in an odd way. Why won't inflation go up? No, that's a great question. Um, so first of all, we've had a really hard time generating inflation for uh, decades now. Ever since the Fed adopted a 2% inflation target, it has hardly hit 2% inflation. Um, so there are a bunch of structural factors in the economy um, that mean it's hard to generate inflation. One, for example, is that we buy mostly services now uh, rather than goods. And so we're adding most of our jobs in the sectors that make the stuff we want to buy. And so we're adding mostly services jobs and services jobs generally are low wage, low hour jobs. So most of the jobs we're adding are, are poorly paid. And so often you get this, this relationship where if you're adding really high wage jobs, you get uh, wage growth and that feeds through into price growth. But we're adding most of our jobs at the bottom of the pay scale. So that kind of wage spiral is really unlikely in this day and age, just given the structure of our economy with the gig economy, technological advancements, digitization, automation. Yeah, all that um, stuff. But also, given that we buy stuff that, you know, it, it, that is uh, services and the jobs that create that are, are cheap. So that's one reason. Um, another reason is that inflation isn't just a domestic issue. So because we're all globalized, you know, these factors leak out. So imports of goods and services in the U.S., imports of goods has just hit a record high. And that suggests that we're buying a lot of stuff from other countries. So if you take your stimulus check in the U.S. and you hire a personal trainer in your neighborhood, that might feed through into inflation. But if you take your stimulus check and you buy a Peloton from Taiwan, a Peloton bike from Taiwan, well, that's just going to leak right out of the U.S. economy. And so given how globalized we are, 
a lot of these inflationary pressures will just leak right out of the economy. Um, and also, if you know the U.S. starts getting some inflation and we're the only ones, the dollar tends to get stronger. And that means we're importing disinflationary pressures from the rest of the world. So it's really hard for a single country or a single region to actually have inflation on a sustained basis without other countries also having it. And so I think we'll be pulled back by the rest of the so world. So you're, you're, kind of, you're kind of sanguine on, on the inflation outlook and therefore this sort of emerging market catalyst, which is linked to rates going up, which is linked to their overexposure, maybe doesn't happen. Uh, and can you see like, you know, before we go, like if you were to look at over two or three years, and normally when you have an experiment like this, and it is a very big experiment, you know, the idea mm-hmm. that that the Treasury just goes to the Fed, says, give us money, and the Fed says, how much do you want? And not only how much do you want, but, you know, we're not going to charge you anything for it or very, very low. I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is a big change, right? And experiments, yep. experiments can go wrong, right? We all, we all know that. But you're, saying yep. that. but you're saying that you believe the economy is a different creature to the creature we thought it was. That's right. And so it's actually really hard to generate inflation on a sustained basis. So if you look at the states 2025, what do you see? Not 2024, you know, a couple of years, not, not, not miles away, just, you know, to, to the extent that the forecast is meaningful, you know, 18 months, 24 months. Because we can, we can all say, oh, the world in 2015 is like, oh, yawn, you know. <laughs> That's right. Because nobody knows and we've already, you know, established that our models and economics are, are rubbish anyhow. Um, yeah, by the way, we'd both, yeah. be, we'd both be looking for a new gig very soon, you know. I've, we've got to retrain. John, will we retrain us? Peloton drivers. <laughs> bicycles, I could see you. I could see John. John was saying, oh, I'm going to buy a bicycle from Taiwan with my, with my paycheck. You wouldn't go far with a, as a Peloton driver. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <Right. laughs> yeah, so I think 24 months out, uh, our economy will still be ticking along. It won't be, I mean, some forecasters are saying the U.S. is going to grow by 7% this year. That's extraordinary and uh, abnormal. And it's partly because of all the stimulus we've already had in the first half of this year. But a bit further out, you know, those stimulus checks, and boost to unemployment insurance, that's all going to peter out. Uh, and we'll still get some more stimulus, um, but it's kind of slower spending, yeah. things like infrastructure projects. So the U.S. economy will t- be ticking along pretty well, but I think inflation will be pretty muted. So I think it will probably be, you know, around the Fed's average target of 2%. But um, my guess is in a couple of years, it will probably be lower than that target than higher. Uh, whereas the concern right now in the short term is that it will creep way above 2% and the Fed will freak out and hike rates into it. And just, just finally, before you go, and the state of economics in two years' time? Because, I mean, again, what I find fascinating is this tug of war between the various different sides. And I, and I, do, I do regard it as theology and I do regard it as schisms. And I think that's natural. I think that's quite, it's quite abnormal for any pursuit or any exercise to have been in this state of intellectual status for so long, mm-hmm. kind of bullied yeah. bullied into intellectual status, if the truth be known. Where do you think it's going to be? I'm just asking for a friend. <laughs> That's right. I have an interest in this too. But um, so I think it depends on what happens with the U.S. economy. So if Bidenomics succeeds and Biden can actually get a big infrastructure spending plan and, you know, investment in human and capital plan passed, uh, and he will get something passed. The question is, how big can it be? Um, and it doesn't generate significant inflation. Then I think we will have learned 
a lot of significant lessons in economics. Uh, this idea that the Washington consensus has dominated since President Reagan, um, so since I was really little, this idea, according to the Washington consensus, that you're not supposed to run up budget deficits. And government's probably not the best actor to do things that should just get out of the way and let private markets, you know, allocate capital efficiently. That idea will be completely dead. Uh, and I think that's, you know, hallelujah. So. That's a hallelujah moment. Yeah, it's, it's about time. And I think we'll embrace this notion that actually the role of the state should be much bigger. The role of policy isn't just to try to nudge the economy towards a single state. It's to prevent the economy from fundamentally dropping to a much lower state or to boost it up to a much higher state. So it's a much more interventionist role for the state. And, you know, everybody freaking out about debt stocks, I think that will be over. And I, I know where you're sitting, you've recently gone through a whole debt crisis. We do it, we do, and- we do it once a decade, you know, we've got used to it. We actually, <laughs> we actually do do it once a decade, by the way. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I mean, if you, if you, if you know, being born in Ireland or any time over the last like 50 years has been an economic storm every couple of years. That's just the way it is, and yeah, and we're still here. Yeah, and the debt stock doesn't really matter. It's how much you're paying to service it, and right now rates are so low. You can't afford not to borrow and spend on some of these things. And I think most importantly, and most I'm most excited about this notion that you should use government spending to actually consider what kind of economy you want to be when you grow up, um, and try to address these major challenges like inequality, you know, climate change, these kinds of things. I, I think there is a big role for the government that's been ignored for in the U.S. for a long time. Um, and so hopefully some of these old ideas uh, will, will be gone forever. I love it. That's really, I, I, I always, I, but I also love that idea of growing up. What sort of place do you want to be when you grow up? Because that's what economics should be all about. It is. There's an interesting um, survey that Pew has done asking millennials whether they like capitalism. And a couple of years ago, for the first time ever, more millennials said they preferred socialism to capitalism. Um, now they had when be they careful were what you what wish for. Be careful what you wish for. Well, yeah. So when they were asked what socialism is, it's clear that most of them had no idea. But the the most popular answer was equality for people. So it it suggests that inequality is an issue that younger people are worried about. And as a result, they just don't feel like capitalism is really working for them. And I think a lot of people feel like that. I think that kind of explains a lot behind Trump and Brexit and a lot of these notions. And so if we have governments accepting that they can spend big to make sure that capitalism does work for everyone, that would be absolutely revolutionary. Megan, we will leave it there. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Really fascinating. Lovely to, lovely to see you. I haven't seen you for ages. Lovely to see you on this yeah. Zoomy world. And uh, thanks so much. Yeah, I hope next time it's in person. Absolutely. Hopefully at Kilkenomics. We'll hey, see. Oh, no, we're, we're, we're thinking we'll be good for that. We're thinking we'll be good for awesome. that. Awesome. Yeah, we're, we're all good. We'll count me in. All right. See you soon. Thanks. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So, Mark, the, essentially what Megan was saying there is that MMT could be the policy and the mechanism to get us out of this growing inequality disparity. Yeah. Well, I mean, what she's saying is money is a tool. It is a technology, right? Mm. We have been schooled for many, many years to see money as a value system, right? She's saying, hold on a second, there is no constraint on money. We're not in the gold standard. We don't have to say X amount of money is equal to X amount of gold. Yeah. We just print the stuff. We worry about inflation when it arrives. But in the meantime, what we try to do is we try to increase the productive capacity of as many people as possible and raise them out of poverty. Mm. And at the same time, tax those who really have too much. I mean, you can have too much. This is the whole idea. Yeah. And the United States has eulogized, it's a really pathetic thing, those who have too much. And saying the people have too much is either really fat, greedy. I'm, I'm saying this in the, in the, not in the physical, but in the yeah, metaphorical yeah, yeah. sense. Yeah. Those people have loads and loads of stuff in their heart. They're really cool. And the poor people are really not cool. Yeah. And, what both, and it's their own fault. And it's, of course it's their own fault. Yeah. So... What I think, you know, and we'll end here, John, because, you know, is that I think that economics is going through a revolution of the possible, not the impossible. Yeah. And yes, there are downsides, and yes, there are risks, and yes, there are all sort of theoretical ways in which you say, well, this is not the case. The major one being, if money is made free, why work? You know, what's the reward for working? Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. But maybe we're at a cusp, we're at a, we're at, maybe we're at a moment where, States realize that we have run the economies too weak and too slow and too unequal. And there is an opportunity to change. And I think we should really just watch this space. But when you talk about a revolution, in all revolutions, there are victims or there are winners and losers. Or the Americans say there's collateral damage. There's collateral damage. Yeah, that's probably a good way of putting it. Where will that be well, in the MMT model? The, okay, there's two ways of looking at this. You know, you could be the Robespierre to my Danton, okay? <laughs> so Danton was the loquacious talker of the revolution and Robespierre was the really mean fellow who eventually pointed fingers <laughs> yeah. and got Danton's head chopped off. But eventually, Robespierre's head was chopped off as well. And, you know, he squealed. Danton... Squeal like a pig! Danton went to the guillotine. He didn't squeal like a pig. 
He went to the guillotine laughing, saying to the executioner, can you imagine this? Hold up my head as I laugh because the people will respect me. Imagine he said this. Whereas Robespierre, (laughs) who was the actual guy who instructed the execution, squealed and tried to get away and the whole thing. Anyway, that's a little sidebar into the French Revolution. (laughs) There will be victims. Now, the very rich will say the victims are always the very poor. So Mm. don't do this because you'll affect the poor, right? Which was the Romanov attitude to the Russian Mm. Bolshevik Revolution. My own sense is, yeah, look, if hyperinflation were to take off, it would be a disastrous for the poor, right? Because the poor always suffer in hyperinflation because the rich can get assets and protect themselves. My sense, though, right now, is the people who are really shitting themselves about MMT and the new Biden revolution are the very rich. You watch Fox News, you'll see what they think, but they're scared because ultimately Biden's coming after them. To all you Patreons out there, thank you so much for supporting us. We couldn't do this without your support. It means a huge amount to us. Also, all your feedback, your suggestions, your comments, our comments to you, our replies to you, really is the essence of the whole thing. So, again, thank you very much. And for all of you who might want to support us, check us out. Patreon.com forward slash David Mike Williams. 